Welcome, everyone, to um, the fourth and final session of Black Intersections on Immigration that is being hosted by Priority Africa Network and the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. We are very proud today to have um, a guest speaker, Javier Williams Comrie, who I will introduce in just a minute. But as I said earlier, this session is being uh, sponsored by the Black Alliance and, uh, for Just Immigration and Priority Africa Network, both based in Oakland. You can find more information about the work that we do under www.priorityafrica.org and www.blackalliance.org. We started these uh, teleconference sessions to examine what we call the black intersections on immigration. We started off with a speaker who looked at immigration, uh, forced immigration um, of African, the first Africans that came to the United States, Professor Rhonda McGee. And this recording is available um, on the website. You're welcome to go and, and uh, listen to it at any time. Um, the second one was uh, with uh, Jackie um, uh, Carson looking at the internal migration, or rather with um, looking at the presence of African immigrants within the United States. Uh, the third one was a recording that we played um, from the radio with Isabel Workinson, the author of um, The Warmth of Other Sons. That, too, is available on the website. Today, um, we are holding the, the fourth and last session looking at uh, the presence of Caribbean and Afro-Latinos in the United States, the, the history of the migration. The uh, speaker is going to be Jean-Vierre Williams uh, Comrie. She is the founder of the Latin American and Caribbean Community Center. She's, a dedicated, she's dedicated to improving the conditions and opportunities for socially excluded and marginalized groups. Genevieve is, um, has worked throughout the Americas with communities on the ground as well as with organizations to address the divisions and isolations faced by many uh, people of African descent and indigenous people, including uh, low-wage workers, undocumented families and immigrants from Latin America and the Caribbean in the United States. Um, and she does so by building a political, uh, the political and critical consciousness when using the human rights framework. So we're very proud to have you join us, Jean-Vive. Um, and if you could uh, begin the uh, talk in just one minute, what we will do is, as I said, this session is being recorded. We will hear from Jean-Vive for about 25 to 30 minutes. Then we will open up for questions and answers. So um, Jean-Vive, uh, you have the floor. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Nunu. And I also want to thank the organizers of these series because they're important series. Um, as we know a lot, a lot of times when we talk about migration and immigration, um, there are large communities that are left out of the equation because um, because of our race or our genders. Um, so I really appreciate the effort put, being put forward by some organizations now to really be more inclusive of the different. Um, you know, the regional differences and racial differences of, you know, of immigration. Um, and now I, I decided that I wanted to focus more on the Caribbean and less on Latin America um, just because throughout um, when we talk about migration and immigration, there is a lot of focus of Latin America, 
Um, so I want to do a little bit, slant a little bit more towards the Caribbean. Um, and as an activist and researcher, I focus a lot of my work on the African diaspora. So in this case, I'll focus a lot on the African Caribbeans. I think um, to begin, we have to really look at what really constitutes the, Car- the Caribbean and really look at the, you know, what defines the Caribbean. So, and to answer that is really more often than not a matter of perspective and context, right? So commonly many people speak and think of the Caribbean as meaning the English-speaking um, islands or the member states of the Caribbean community, which is often known as the CARICOM. Sometimes the phrase the wider Caribbean is used to refer to what is in effect the others, meaning the Spanish, French, and Dutch-speaking Caribbean. In a lot of the recent Spanish publications that I've been reading, the term El Caribe is being used more often, but it's, it really only refers to the Spanish-speaking islands, or the term Antillas is also being used that refers to the entire chains of islands. Um, recently also I've been seeing a lot of Caribe Insular, which is the insular Caribbean, meaning just the islands, and then you have El Gran Caribe, which is the Great Caribbean that includes the entire basin, including the countries that are touched by the Caribbean Sea. Many people use, as myself, we use the Caribbean in a socio-historical category and referring to the Caribbean as a cultural zone that has had the legacy of slavery and a plantation system. Um, And this definition really embraces the islands and parts of the adjoining mainland, which also include um, Panama and Colombia, and is extended to include the Caribbean diaspora overseas. Um, Amongst a lot of activists, when we talk about Caribbean, we also, we tend to say, I tend to say a lot of times that the Caribbean must include um, cities that have large diasporic um, communities, such as Florida and New York, in the case of Florida being a large population of Haitians and Cubans, and New York being a large population of Jamaicans. But really, the definition of Caribbean might also be based just on language and identity, geography, history, and culture, or geoeconomics, or basically disorganization. Um, but the application that we see a lot of times in regards to it being geogra- the geography around um, the Caribbean have really been inventions of imperial powers. Um, now, in regards to the history, history of migration, which I was asked to really focus on, um, the direction and magnitude of migration in the Caribbean have really always been influenced and intertwined by trends in global and regional socioeconomic development, and that what has been the history of the past, and it continues to be the history of the present. The slave trade in the 18th and 19th centuries caused the first major migration waves into that region. After emancipation in the 19th century, workers, predominantly men, began moving within the region in search of employment or better working conditions. Since the 1960s, the accelerated magnitude of international capital investment, mainly from the United States, has helped to create what is now known as global cities within the Caribbean and within the United States due to the heightened international labor demand within the region. 
there has also been investment capital into the Caribbean that have disrupted traditional agricultural systems and ancestral traditions. And one example, which a lot of people surprisingly don't know about, is that in 1982, the United States put political pressure on the Haitian government to slaughter all the pigs in, in Haiti um, because the United States was concerned that there was going to be um, spread of disease because of the, of the pigs into the, in the United States. Um, and this created, as we can imagine, an unbalance in the local agriculture, the Haitian economy, not to mention the environmental consequences um, to Haiti. And this is just one example of the many policies that the United States have had with um, different countries in the Caribbean, and all these things have created economic and political destabilization and ecological conditions which have pushed a lot of migration also um, within the Caribbean. Um, these things also explain why human migrations have been a livelihood strategy for the people of the Caribbean, both those that migrate and those that remain. I should also mention that in the definition, the work that I do in regards to migration, when I look at migration, um, migrants are not those that only that immigrate into a host country, but also refers to the families that are left behind. And I'll get into that a little bit um, further further down today because the impacts in the Caribbean um, are, are very are very distinct in regards to the families that remain back in the in their countries of origin. The concept of migration adaptation that occurred shortly after emancipation involved thousands of men and women looking for poorly paid labor. Most of this migration took place within the Caribbean, and it was mostly from Barbados to Trinidad and Guyana. And at this point, we have to acknowledge the importation of more than 400,000 indentured Asian workers into mostly the Southern Caribbean, most of them coming from Calcutta, and Madras, and they went to Guyana, Trinidad, and Jamaica. And then we also have Indians that went to Guadeloupe, Martinique, and French Guyana. International shift in capital investment pushed mostly Jamaican workers in, the, in 1848 to the construction of a railway across the Isthmus of Panama, and later from Trinidad as mine workers throughout South America in approximately 1889. I really want to stress again that what history has really taught us, and not only in the Caribbean, is that a lot of the movements of migrants within the region of the Americas has, in most cases, been mandated by U.S. labor needs and the economic application and withdrawal of U.S. capital. So migrants from Barbados, Jamaica, the Danish, Dutch, and French islands also went to Panama for the building of the canal between 1905 and 1907. And from about 1907 to 1920, there was a culture of seasonal work within the Caribbean in which massive numbers of men from St. Kitts, Nevis, Nevis, Anguilla, and Antigua migrated to the Dominican Republic as sugarcane workers. So we can also see that there's a gendered aspect of migration as well. Now, parallel to that, there are steam liners that expanded individual travel possibilities, and a lot of people from the Caribbean traveled to the United States. And now when I say people from the Caribbean, I'm referring specifically to a majority of African Caribbean. And they traveled mainly to New York and Boston. 
the men and women that arrived were classified by immigration as Negro immigrant aliens and were admitted from the Caribbean in 1901 when only 10,630 were admitted until 1924 when there was an estimated total number of 102,000 people that, that entered the United States. And on the onset of the 1917 Literacy Act, we can see an influx of a majority female immigrants, and this is because they had at least a grammar school education um, level and they had a skill, um, mostly cooking and sewing. And we see a decline in male immigration into the region because of the lack of um, grammar skills. Now, sadly, this is not really noted in a lot of the research that's out there, and it's hard to find this information. Also, what is not noted is that in the early 1900s, there were several organizations dealing with helping new African Caribbean immigrants in the United States, and these were mostly founded by Caribbeans themselves. In New York City, for example, one of the most prominent um, organizations was called the British Colonial Society, and that had the objective of aiding immigrants to combat prejudice of Southern blacks directed against Caribbean newcomers. And I took that verbatim. Um, this was founded by the Wilkins Stever family, and they were from Dominic, from the Dominica. So we can also um, see that there were some racial um, divisions based just on location of where people were coming from as they came into the United States. Now, I go back to gender um, because we can, in regards to gender, we see that African-Caribbean women's migration was a threat to the views that were already here in the United States. They were constantly under suspicion of prostitution, and they were always subject to surveillance by authorities and subject to policing. And there, there are various accounts of women that were arrested with the charges of prostitution. Now, during, this is parallel to the time of the, of the First World War, and we see that a lot of European migrant women who were once cooks, maids, and laundry workers found jobs in factories uh, found the jobs that men that you that men used to have, but African American and African Caribbean women were excluded from those jobs. But they were able to replace the previously European migrant women who were working as cooks, maids, and laundry workers. And we see a lot of coalition building between the African American and African Caribbean women in regards to labor. Now, fast forward to the oil boom. The oil boom in 1970s attracted many migrants from the smaller and less developed islands to work in the oil refineries in the dependencies of the Netherlands and the United States, particularly the U.S. Virgin Islands, Aruba, and the Netherlands, and TES. Also booming energy sector in Trinidad and Tobago was a magnet for many in search of employment. So we see movement um, to the U.S. Virgin Islands um, and to the United States, but we also see it to other Caribbean islands during that time. With the fast forward, once again, um, with the move towards independence in the 1960s and 1970s, chances to easily move north decreased only temporarily. The growing demand for qualified labor in North America opened new windows for opportunities for highly qualified. 
the United States, but also in lesser degrees, Canada and the UK, introduced legislation that favored the admission of skilled workers to fill the gaps in selected sectors of the domestic labor market, which could not be filled by nationals. As a consequence, a mass exodus of professionals, particularly skilled women in health and education, began, and that put a lot of unbalance with a lot of the local, um, local people that were here in, within the United States. Fast forward once again, with the global crisis in the energy sector in the 1980s, the demand for labor declined and new employment opportunities were needed. The growing tourism sector in the Caribbean in the 1990s increased the demand for workers in the service sector, which in many instances could not be supplied by the domestic labor force in some of the smaller Caribbean islands. As a consequence, we see workers from other islands in neighboring countries in Latin America, particularly from Panama, Colombia, and Venezuela, that went to the Caribbean, went to, the Caribbean to fill the gaps. Now, and I want to fast forward because um, this will have a, a, a more interactive discussion into where we are today. Um, in total, over the last 50 years, the Caribbean, with the present population of about 39 million people, has lost more than 5 million um, people. Based on the most recent data on migration provided by the UN, the net migration rate for the Caribbean is one of the highest worldwide, with a great variation within the region itself. The countries that have experienced the greatest losses over the decades have been Haiti, Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, and St. Lucia. New trends in return migration suggest that these losses may be temporary since many migrants who sent spend their economically active lives in the diaspora are returning to retire and invest in their home countries. Remittances and in-kind contributions sent by migrants provide important benefits to the immediate family members as well as the national economy back home. We have countries like Jamaica and the DR and Haiti that are among those that benefit worldwide from the most remittances received. However, the measurement um, is very imprecise, and it doesn't include the flows and non-monetary goods. Um, and then there, there are two groups which I think most of the people on this call are working with um, today, and this is where we can have our discussion as we move forward um, after I finish. Um, there are two groups that are really um, a serious concern in, this, in the region. And the first group is the migrants who enter the country, quote-unquote, illegally, who overextend their stay beyond the limits of their visas or whose residence or citizenship status has been altered due to the changes in the legal framework. This, includes, this also includes women and girls who are trafficked as commercial sex workers, mainly from the Dominican Republic, to tourist destinations not only within the region, but also in major cities in North America. And then the second group, of course, are deportees who involuntarily deported or, as they call it, repatriated to their home country following a conviction of a criminal or civil offense. Many of the deportees have left their country of birth at a very, very young age, many, many years before they're deported back and therefore do not have any family or community network to help with their reintegration. At this point, I wanted to go into discussing um, Haiti a little bit, 
but I I feel that I would I would rather have a discussion to see how can we move forward um, from here in regards to looking at the African Caribbean um, migration into the United States because when I was doing um, when I was preparing for this a few days ago I, I realized that we don't really discuss much about the presence and the impact of Afro Caribbeans. Um, in regards to migration. And a lot of people, you know, we know about Jamaicans, we know about people from Trinidad, we know that we might know a little bit about um, Cuba and, and the tangent relationships between Cuba and Haiti in regards to immigration policies, but we don't always look at it as, as such a, a hmm, the impactful... The, the impact that it has on migration um, and how policies are shaped. So, Nunu, I think I would like to open it up for a discussion now. Thank you very much, Jean-Vierre. This has been a, a really good overview. You have contextualized it in, in history. Um, you have given us um, a working definition of what the Caribbean consists of in terms of geography, identity, um, where the, the majority of Caribbean community are relocating when they come to the United States, the history of it. You've packed a whole lot in within just a few minutes, so that's, that's been absolutely wonderful. I agree with you that I think uh, continuing from here, we could respond to people's questions um, um, in terms of what you've talked about. Again, we're speaking with Jean-Bierre williams Comrie. This, uh, this teleconference is called the Black Intersections on Migration, uh, sponsored by Priority Africa Network and the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. For those of you who are joining us on this call, um, if you have a question for Jean-Bierre, uh, what you can do is uh, push star five, um, and I will unmute you because I can see um, on my computer uh, way, uh, page who's on the call. So if you push star five, I'll be able to call on you without having to unmute everyone, and that helps us keep the, the noise level down uh, for recording purposes. So please go ahead and do so. If you have a comment or a question for, for Jean-Bierre, um, or if you have any kind of clarifying questions um, on anything that she's talked about and that perhaps she can continue to speak a little um, broadly on a specific area that she's spoken on or uh, bring us into the current context of how the immigration debate uh, that's currently going on um, in this country uh, specifically affects um, either people or communities from, from the region. So the floor is open. Uh, star five is what you need to push in order to um, ask a question. or make a comment. Oh, everything was quite clear. <laughs> there are no questions and there are no comments. Uh, clearly, people who are on the call, um, who are from the region, who have come at a previous period that Jean-Vierre was speaking about may have a personal t story to, to share. Oh, I see someone um, from the 651 area code, 662. Um, you have a question, and um, hold on one second. Let me unmute you. Go ahead. Hello. Uh, this is uh, Penny Snipper with the Blue Cross Blue Shield Foundation. We are... Um, belong to a task force with uh, several other 
funders in the Midwest working on immigration issues. So my question to, to Genevieve is, amongst the, the immigrants in this population, do you know approximately how many are um, citizens, how many you know, are undocumented? Because that is an issue that um, we have here in the Midwest. What's, what's the issue in the Midwest? The, the, the issue is that we have uh, a large immigrant population. The, the, the issue uh, is A, the, the racism and also the, the undocumented. And what we are trying to get at here is to really um, try to tackle the issue from uh, an economic perspective. So the, the question is, in the Afro-Caribbean um, communities, the, the, the migrants, what percentage are citizens uh, who are engaged in um, the civic dialogue and, and what percentage are undocumented? Or are you able to answer that? I, I couldn't answer specifically how many people are documented or undocumented. Um, as, as you heard from what I, from what I mentioned, the, the Afro-Caribbean population in the United States, a lot of it is, has, have been in this country for generations now, right? So we also see a large assimilation with African-American communities um, from the early 1900s up until today. Now there is, there is an influx of, of people from the Carib African descendants from the Caribbeans, for example, from, from Haiti, from, from the DR, from Jamaica, uh, if we consider the, the, the extent, you know, the greater Caribbean touched by the, by the Caribbean Sea, we see Panamanians, Colombians, and people from Venezuela. Of those, I couldn't tell you specifically how many people are documented or undocumented, um, because it's very hard to keep track of how many people are undocumented and, you know, within, with, from the Caribbean. Now, there have been, um, there have been deportations of people that, no, I can't even say that they have only been undocumented. The people that have, have been convicted of, of crimes, but that doesn't constitute, constitute that they were undocumented. So I couldn't answer that with a concrete number. So, for example, in New York and Florida, where there are the, the large um, populations, do you know how organized they're getting or are, are in terms of um, in, in the, the fight um, for immigrant rights? Um, you know. Oh, they're, they, the, the communities on the ground are highly organized. Um, and there are several not only nonprofit organizations working on the ground with them, but they also have their own clusters of community-based organizations. So no, the communities on the ground, I would say in most cities in the country, in the countries are extremely organized. 
Thank you, John. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering if you could um, take this moment to expand um, a little bit more about the where all this fits within the current debate on immigration. But before we get to that, I think there's one more question uh, from someone uh, who's calling from the 678 area code 768 prefix. Um, you have the floor. Go ahead. Uh, good day. Um, John Vail, I think I can help you answer that question. Just to explain what John Vail was saying. Uh, this is Jason Walker, by the way, Afro-Caribbean from Jamaica. Um, there's really no way, especially now, you're going to get any figures on undocumented persons because, especially the new laws, if they show themselves being undocumented, a person has to, by law, report them and you know the rest. And then in terms of citizens, with the exception of certain areas um, in Florida and probably certain areas in New York, when the Census Board goes out and does its work, you know, Caribbean isn't down there. So it's not like there's an organization collecting the name based on somebody coming from the Caribbean. So to get that information, and it's not even, even in places like Florida where it's concentrated, it's not done everywhere. It's just certain areas that the toll taker will actually have Caribbean on their sheet. So as of right now, most Caribbean citizens that are, you know, Caribbean descent citizens in the U.S. are put into the spot of African American on a general basis. Um, I have, I have an, another question which, which, which speaks to probably a future movement of Caribbean people, um, Caribbean descent people within the United States. But I'm going to leave that question to me. John, we have answered the question that the moderator just asked to then ask my question. Okay. Go Thanks, ahead, Now, Nunu, can you repeat your question? Um, I'm hoping, and you don't have to do it now, that you could tie up the, the comment that the gentleman just made with um, the current context of immigration debate. For one thing, um, any time this quote-unquote immigration debate or comprehensive immigration policy is discussed, it's assuming that the majority of the immigrants we're talking about are coming from south of the border, from Mexico and, and uh, Central America. Um, and that assumption um, is part of the reason why we're doing the teleconferences on uh, black intersections on migration to uh, bring in the, the concept of um, race uh, analysis into the immigration debate and the presence of uh, the history of Caribbean um, movement to the United States, that also raises a question of um, identity because I think a lot of times when, when we talk about Caribbeans present in, within the U.S., we are assuming that um, both Caribbeans, Lat uh, Afro-Latinos, African, um, African immigrants are all folded in into this broad homogeneous uh, community of African Americans, which isn't necessarily true. So um, your comments on that and, and also how all this fits into the immigration debate and, and how your organization is responding to this. Okay. Thanks, Nunu. And, and when, I, when I was putting my thoughts together for this, I was really looking also at how could I, and I decided, well, let me tell you first what I was looking at doing. Um, I was looking at how I could really look at race within within immigration um, 
and then also linking the linking this to this and that would expand i think that would be that couldn't be captured in 25 30 minutes i think that will be probably a full weekend to discuss that um and that's just to 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 brush on it and not really to deal with the issues that are deep down inside because when we look at when we look at race identity and how it matters politically for Caribbeans um, and Latinos as migrants, then we have to also look at, you know, what does it mean in the context of being African-Americans within the United States? And I think that's one of the things that a lot of immigrant rights groups um, are failing to do. Um, they're starting to look at race um, to an extent, but it's it's very insular and looking at race from an immigrant perspective and not really looking at race as it relates to being um, an immigrant in the context of the United States where there is a large population of African Americans. So, you know, so we also have to look at, and when, when I hope I'm not, I'm not I hope I'm not, Sounding, I hope I'm not confusing out there, but you know when we look at the standard definition of race, we also have to look at group identity as a um, construction that that has two components. One is a group identification, so meaning I have to identify myself as part of this group, and a lot of Afro-Caribbeans. Um, and Afro-Latinos might not identify as part of this group. And then the other piece is group consciousness. So what does it mean to identify as an Afro-Latino or Afro-Caribbean if there is not a group consciousness about race? Um, and all those things have to be discussed around immigration, which is why I'm really glad that this discussion is happening. Um, now, in regards to the the immigration um, debate and discourse, I put a lot of I put a lot of weight um, less on the immigration debate, more so on the reaction from a lot of people that and you know a lot of times we burn bridges when we talk about about this topic specifically. But I put a lot of a lot of the my emphasis more on the organizations that are doing you know on the ground organizing for sometimes being misleading and mis, misinforming our communities about the history of this country in regards to race and the history of our people coming into this country in regards to race. Um, when we look at immigrant rights organizations, especially the larger ones um, out there, you know, we still see a leadership that is not reflective of the region. We see um, people speaking on other, other groups' behalf and people deciding what groups to leave behind and leave out of the discourse. So a lot of times when we see national mobilizations on the stage and we have many speakers speaking about the rights of immigrants, not once are the rights of Haitian immigrants mentioned, not once are the rights of Jamaicans that are massively being deported back to their home countries mentioned, and not um, more than usual, the large um, numbers of Afro-Caribbeans that are incarcerated are never mentioned as an immigration issue. So in this, the work that the Latin American and Caribbean Community Center does is more in advocating and pushing to make sure that the issues of African descendants 
as migrants from the Americas and the Caribbean are also at the forefront of immigration and the issues that immigrants are facing here because we cannot push an immigration agenda but only push certain people forward and leave leave us behind, really. So that's how I would answer your question, Nunu. Um, we focus more on the organizing aspect of it and really highlighting and bringing to the forefront the issues that are affecting Afro-descendants rather than pushing an agenda that doesn't include us. This is very helpful, Genevieve. Thank you very much. I agree with you. I think the question of uh, race and immigration and relations between African Americans and um, uh, people of, of the Caribbean uh, would definitely take a, long, a lot longer than, than we plan to spend on this. But I mention it um, even briefly because I am always amazed when I hear or read history, um, African American history, that includes uh, so many individuals uh, from the Caribbean who are considered African-American who have been part of the black resistance um, for many of, of the rights that we consider um, to be um, fully um, uh, part of the African-American history now, you know, um, not just uh, people like Stokely Carmichael, but uh, including uh, Marcus Garvey and and uh, many children of immigrants exactly. who came to the United yeah. States to be fully African American. So we we forget that that there, that it isn't a very clear sort of delineation of boundary and identity of who is African American and who is Caribbean. Yeah. <laughs> Does anyone else have a question or a comment to make? Open or is open? We have uh, a few more minutes, and I see someone from the. Six seven eight seven six eight number, and um, you have the floor. Hi, hi guys. This is uh, again. Uh, and by the way, you can add Malcolm X to that list. He's Grenadian American. But um, that being said, um, well, I, I'm not too sure who organized this. I was invited by John Viev, and I've learned for a long time ago when John Viev says jump, I just ask how high, and I'm glad I came on the line because. Um, this discourse, as I said earlier, is not regularly done. Either do I find in, in the American circles or the immigrant circles having this specific discourse, which is a very necessary discourse. Um, and right now, and I'm not too sure what, what the purpose is fully of the whoever organized this is, but I can tell you what I'm dealing with right now. I'm dealing with how do I help to educate even Afro-Caribbean people who have been hoodwinked by this national discourse that immigrants are only Mexican? Because in Florida and Georgia, where I do, where I'm involved with a lot of immigration work, I can't see anybody <laughs> that's of the darker hue involved in this conversation. And I know it's because they're totally impacted by the national conversation which uh, is, in my opinion, deliberately misleading. Um, and then, now, the other side of the coin, um, I guess I, I think a pan-African perspective is very necessary to even get to that goal that John Vier was talking about in our presentation. And I'm just trying to figure out, I have no idea how to bring that perspective well, not me personally, but that perspective needs to be brought to 
Africans who see them who see themselves as Americans, Africans who are you know see themselves as African and Afro Caribbean, Afro Latino who are in this country, we kind of have to have that Pan African perspective if we're going to move forward. You mentioned Marcus Garvey and really change the conversation and change the way things are being done and try and represent these voices that are not being represented. And I don't know if anybody on the call has the answer to this question, but, you know, that's, that's kind of where I find myself. Jean-Vive, did you have a comment or response? That's something that, that we struggle with all the time, and that's something that I spoke about a little bit about the the assimilation that Afro-Caribbeans and some Afro-Latinos have, you know, the, the, the assimilation that has taken place with our brothers and sisters that are African-Americans here within the United States. Um, and the fact, and I, and I, think, I, I think there's something important to also that we have to highlight that we're not always honest in our discussions about either. Um, I mentioned it a little bit when I was speaking and that's the fact that a lot of people that have come to the United States from the Caribbean that are Afro-Latinos have come with a, not all of them, but there's a large, there's a large number that, came, that have come here and migrated from a middle-class status in their countries mm-hmm. of origin. Um, and that's not something that's honestly being spoken about the class differences of people that migrate from the, specifically from the Caribbean um, to the United States that have, you know, master's university degrees, be it a bachelor or a, a, a master's, that come from a background that have money, whose parents own land, et cetera, et cetera, and are now migrating here in the United States. The other pieces I know from from personal experiences and oral oral experiences that I've heard from other people, a lot of people that are Afro-Latinos and also um, Caribbeans, Afro-Caribbeans from Spanish region, Caribbean, um, you know, you migrate to get away from from who your people are, right? You you migrate, people, I've heard people from the DR, people from Panama um, that have told me that, you know, in the house they could speak um, Spanish, in the United States, but outside of the house, you have to speak English because you do not want to be considered the others, right? So I think, I think Jason, in, in regards to how to talk to people that have been hoodwinked, we have to go back in history and really undo why we don't one why do why we don't want to be really considered from where we are unless it has to do with the cultural aspect of it, but not the political, the economic, and the class and the gender realities that we face as Caribbeans and Afro-Latinos, but also why we have, yeah, and this is like, so why we have embraced being from the United States so much, but yet we do not want to be considered African-Americans, because that's also something, honestly, that we have to discuss. So I don't have an answer. I just, I just know that we have to have these discussions around class, um, as we migrate from the Caribbean and, and Latin America as African descendants. And then we also have to have this internalized racism discussion around not wanting to be acknowledged for what, from where we are from and not wanting to be considered African Americans, but wanting to be quote-unquote Americans. 
Thank you, Jean-Vierre. We have one additional question or comment from the 718 area code 807 prefix. You have the floor. Go ahead. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Enrique, and I would like Jean-Vierre to talk a bit about the migrations from the countries like Panama and Ecuador or Dominican Republic, where there is a large presence of Afro-Latinos, and they have moved to the States. I know she focused on the Caribbean. That's one reality, but they're also. And just as a note, uh, Marcos Garvey did play a big role, included in Panama. Uh, he had a presence in Panama. Thank you. So uh, it's, impor it's important to know that any large migration, and there's a large migration, as, as the caller mentioned, and the caller should say is my father, right? Um, the caller mentioned is um, from, from Panama and other countries throughout Latin America of Afro-Latinos. And we should, men we should also know re honestly that any large migration has had to do with something that has happened, an unbalance that has happened in the country of origin. In the case of Panama, there is a large exodus of, of Panamanians, a large number of Afro-Panamanians Afro that migrated from Panama to the United States and to Canada also um, with, um, in 1989 because of the invasion of, of Panama. Um, now, there's also, in, for example, in a city like, like Georgia, there is a very large number of Afro-Panamanians that migrated beforehand um, that were considered, and they're Afro-Panamanians, but they're also U.S. citizens that, were, that lived in the Canal Zone area, and they migrated back to Georgia when the Panama Canal was reverted back to Panamanian hands in, um, in the year 2000. So that's also something, something that, that has to be spoken about, um, the different, and I hate to use the word categories, but the different levels of migrations and immigration statuses within, within different countries as they migrate North, if I could say, you know, North. The same. It's the same issue with with Grenada, with um, what happened in Grenada in the, I believe it was in the 80s, um, and the the migration that took place, and also um, the 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 agricultural imbalances that happened in Jamaica and the migrations from Jamaica into the United States. Now, in regards to 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 what's happening today, a lot of Afro-Latinos can no longer migrate as easily as they did 10, 15 years ago because the immigration um, requirements are much, uh, are much harder. Now people have to own land. They have to have a certain um, income level to apply for visas. So the days of the visas just basically expiring and people staying are becoming lesser and lesser as it becomes harder to get visas from, from the countries. Now, in regards to Afro-Latino migration from the Americas, and that includes um, Afro, from Afro-Brazilians all the way from South America all the way 
to basically um, to basically Nicaragua, there is a there is a number. It's not a very large number, but there is a number of Afro Latinos that are trying to migrate through the U.S. Mexico border. And the, a few years ago, I went to the border. This was around two or three years ago. I could still, based on my race, just come in and out of that through that border. It was very porous that way because they did not think that I would be undocumented or or not. The last time I went, which was I think a year and a half ago, I already had to show my documents, which means that they were also getting um, stricter in regards to race. So now in Ciudad Juarez, for example, we visited a small community there of mostly Afro-Latinos from, from, it was Afro-Latinos from Nicaragua, there were Panamanians there, and there were people from Venezuela that had, that had not been able to come into the United States because of the category of race. And what is creating in Ciudad Juarez is this community where they didn't have it before of Afro-descendants that they have no idea what to do with, and they're blaming a lot of the crime that's taking place into that Juarez, which you already know has a lot of issues because of the quote-unquote um, drug war. Um, they're blaming a lot of this onto the African-descendant people there, even though they did not have an African community beforehand. But now everything is being blamed on these communities, and they're being highly detained. And this is not something that you would hear about when we talk about the issues between the border and Ciudad Juarez and and Mexico, and and the United States, sorry. Thank you, Genevieve. Um, It is now 12.53, and we have just a few more minutes left, so I will give the floor to one additional question and give Genevieve enough chance to make some closing statements and give out the website of your organization and um, anything additional that you think is important. Uh, This Caller is calling from area code 202-906-prefix. You have the floor. Go ahead. Hi. This is – thanks a lot. Um, This is Shan from my twerking group, and um, I just wanted to to really thank thank all of you you who put the call together. I think this has been really, really great. Um, My family is is Afro-Caribbean, comes from Guyana and from Puerto Rico. and I grew up in Atlanta, and so I think that a lot of the questions that um, that have been coming up, especially from Jason and um, from Jean-Viev, has been really interesting to me. And I and I think that one thing that I just it's, this is more a comment, and just to add another question to the list of questions that have come up, um, is that in the work that we do, we do a lot of kind of cross cross constituency work, talking about racial profiling, and ta- we work with kind of um, those affected by the war on drugs, the war on immigrants, and um, the war on terror, and so talking about racial profiling that comes from all of those supposed wars from the United States. And I think that um, one piece that's often kind of that, that has become increasingly apparent to me is the question of how in doing this type of work and doing work with a broad group of people, how we confront our own racism. And so, and I think that that's a big part of of why Afro-Latinos and Afro-Caribbeans are left out of the immigration debate um, kind of at a national level. And and even on the ground, we've seen, you know, folks, talk, you know, having issues with, you know, Latino groups saying, why are you working with terrorists? Because we're working, you know, to against, you know, anti-Muslim stuff. Or why why are you working with illegals when we're working with, you know, undocumented migrants? Um, and I think that the same issues kind of come up when we're talking about race and talking about, um, you know, just the, the, as you know, in my own family, just the, the, the distancing from, you know, our family and, like, being, being 
being black but being from the Caribbean versus being African-American and having that kind of separation. And I think that, that Jean-Vierre has brought up some really good points about um, about the class issues there. Um, but I think that I just wanted to put on the table that I think that it, there's there's kind of a bigger conversation about just how we talk about racial justice and how we talk about racism in this country. And I think that in some ways I think that that kind of the Afro-Latino um, constituency has an opportunity to kind of like push the racial justice piece within the immigrant rights movement. I don't know. I mean, I think that that's obviously really difficult, but I kind of see some some hope in in, in having that kind of perspective represented there. Um, so I just wanted to to bring up that question about confronting confronting our own racism and then um, being able to to talk about race a lot a lot more openly, which obviously is a really difficult thing to do in this country. So thanks. Thank you. And and I agree. And that's part of the work that the Latin American and Korean Community Center does. We actually hold anti-oppression trainings with the organizers, um, with Latino, Caribbean, and indigenous organizers and their constituents around, um, you know, we have, there's seven different categories that we use, but race and ethnicity as well as gender and sexual identity are the are the main ones that we um that we use because in order in order for us to really talk about racial justice in an honest way, we do have to confront the internalized racism, not that we have quote unquote um, learned here, which a lot of immigrant organizers would say that they learn about racism here, that they never experienced racism in their countries of origin. And that's where it's a good opportunity to confront, okay, well, what class and race were you considered in your countries of origin? Because that also, what we bring from our countries of origin into whatever country we end up migrating to, and some of us migrate to two or three countries before we get to one that we stay for in for a few years, our experiences in our countries of origin also mold who we are as we migrate. And all of us throughout Latin America and all of us throughout the Caribbean have been really socialized through the media, which is the same media from the United States and Canada and Europe. We have been socialized through the media to consider ourselves better than certain groups. No matter what group we're from, we're part of, we're, we have been socialized to consider ourselves racially superior to a certain group. In the case, for example, of, um, of Afro-Latinos, we're socialized to consider ourselves better than African-Americans and Afro-Caribbeans, you know. So we have all these things that we have to undo in order to really look at immigration for what it is, which is a social justice issue and a human rights issue. And without really looking at the, the racism and the sexism um, that we bring with us and then that gets confounded here in the United States even more, um, we're really running in circles and fighting for rights, but only for some people, while we leave a large portion of people out of our discourse. This has been tremendously um, informative and useful and um, incredible good information and new analysis, Genevieve. Um, I thank you so much for, for taking the time to give us um, your perspective on the work, uh, bringing it to today's um, context of uh, the debate on immigration, the issue of um, race and identity as relates to immigration, of course, is, is a much longer one that, that we need to um, hold it at some other time. Partly the, the whole goal of these teleconferences the, uh, is to look at the intersections of race and immigration 
and um, pr the perspective uh, specifically from um, the black perspectives on, on immigration. And we have analyzed uh, different perspectives of this from different communities, and, and I think this has been tremendously useful and, and beneficial. As I had said at the beginning, this, record, this session has been entirely recorded. Um, it's being sponsored by the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, www.blackalliance.org, and Priority Africa Network, www.priorityafrica.org. You can find the recordings on our website, and it will be there um, for future for those of you who would like to go and listen to it or pass it on to others that you think might find it interesting. Uh, lastly, I'd like to give you the floor for just a minute or 30 seconds, Genevieve, to share information about your organization and the website as well. Absolutely. So um, the organization's website is www.laccenter.org. Um, my email is jwilliams at laccenter.org, and that's la3cs and then the word enter, so laccenter.org. Um, I should also mention that we host a two-hour radio show called Radio Diaspora that broadcasts live um, on Saturdays between 5 and 7 Eastern Standard Time on WRFG, um, 89.3 if you're in Atlanta, and if you're on the web, then it's wrfg.org. And issues like these are being discussed almost every single week on our show. Um, and it's an organizing tool um, for the immigrant community and the African-American community as well. Um, so I would encourage you to tune in. And the, webs the link to the radio is on your website as well? On the, uh, it's, on, it's on the site, on the Radio Diaspora. Fantastic. And that link was again? www.laccenter. Org. Thank you again, Genevieve. On that last note, um, I will, um, I'd like to inform all our listeners that uh, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration will be celebrating its fifth anniversary on June 4th, uh, 2011. And for those of you who are in California or in the Bay Area, we invite you to join us. We're very proud of the five years of activism on um, immigration, um, race and immigration work and new perspectives that we have brought with allies like Genevieve and, and others that have done uh, previous teleconferences. And thank you, everyone, for joining. We um, appreciate the time that you took to be on the call to contribute to questions and comments, and we wish you a good day. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.